Let's dive in this morning. Everybody take a deep breath. Can't exhale yet. And now exhale. All right, here we go. We're going to dive back into Ephesians. We looked at chapter 2 last week. And let me just say this in advance. I have about 45 points this morning. Oh, yeah, good times, right? That was Glennis. That's my neighbor. I can't lie. I don't like her either. Now, here's the deal. So we're going to dive in. There's not really 45 points. I don't know how many. There's, there's a few points. And they all kind of, they all flow. We're, we're going to go somewhere this morning with a specific end point, okay? So we're going somewhere with a specific end point, And that end point's going to ultimately come down, hey, so now what's our responsibility, okay? So we're going to kind of lay out some facts. We're going to look at some really cool stuff. Maybe change your theology in some areas uh, and how you kind of view the church. And then we're going to look at our responsibility, okay? So here's what I'm asking. If you're sitting next to a person you know is going to distract you, you can either get up and move or you can just choose not to be distracted. Okay, that's number one. Number two, I'm asking if you normally take notes to take notes because there are some points we're trying to make this morning. And I'm going to say a couple of things this morning that's going to possibly, I'm not going to say they're going to offend, but they're going to challenge. Maybe even challenge how you view the purpose of your own salvation, in your relationship with Jesus and what that means, okay? Number three, if you're already sitting here a little bit frustrated and you're already kind of a little bit on edge, you need to release that now in Jesus' name because that's not him. If you're sitting here just a little bit offended, that's your flesh and not Jesus, you need to go ahead and let it go. If you're already feeling a little distant this morning, that's definitely not the Lord's will. You're at home and in family, and you need to embrace that this morning because God wants to speak. So, Jesus, right now, I pray, God, for a spirit of unity to flow in Jesus' name. And I'm asking now, God, that you remove a spirit of distraction that would keep us from seeing and hearing Jesus because you brought us here this morning to change us forever, Jesus we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's dive in. Get your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Now, before I dive into that, remember last week, Jew and Gentiles, and they hate each other. Because the Jews aren't nice. The Gentiles, a lot of times, want to play nice, and the Jews think they're better than everybody else in the world because they're God's chosen, and they've hoarded all their blessings and all their gifts for themselves and haven't asked anybody to know God, Yahweh, make it really, really hard to know Him, right? So they have created the holy huddle, afraid of maybe being blighted and affected by the unholy heathens out here, okay? And so there's this great divide, great tension, and they don't like one another. But God said, nope, 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 that's not my plan. The Gentiles mean you're way out here, you're unloved, you're unaccepted, none of my promises have applied to you, but I've sent Jesus, and now I've called you as part of my family, because I love you, and all the, the dividing wall, the wall of hostility... You understand what that word means? They like each other. This wall of hostility has come crumbling down, and I brought you into the same home, into the same house, and you're one family, so it's time to get along. All right? Tore down the wall of racism. Out of his great love in two people groups, he made them one, and that's where we get to. So because that's happened, consequently, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In Christ, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, in Jesus, you two are being built together, Jew Gentile, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the theme of these verses and connecting back to verse 11 is unity. Unity in the family of God because of the work of Jesus. So the theme here is that we're unified. We are together as one. The idea for Paul is simple. He wants to encourage the churches to remember God's work in their lives, right? His power is grace. He wants them to remember the power of their salvation and what it practically meant for them now to live in unity as one together, as one family. So this morning, we're going to dive into the ramifications of Paul's words, what he is saying, what it means, and how it applies to his readers. So, readers. He's writing to a specific group of people, a Jew and Gentile. And he's writing to them in their day and age, right? So it applies to them. But whenever I say there or our this morning, it applies to us too. Everything that was true for the Gentiles in this moment, their identity and their calling, it applies to you and to me, right? So when I say there or our this morning, it applies to all of us. So the first thing that we see that applies to them, us, right? That applies to them, that applies to us, number one, is these verses define their personal identity, okay? These verses, it defines their personal identity. So once again, Paul reminds them of who they are because of the grace of God in their life. So the language of verse 19 that we read, consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens, it looks back to verse 12 where the Gentiles are told, hey, Remember your separation. Remember your exclusion from God's family. So here in the present tense, verse 19, they reminded again, like, remember who you were? Now let's recognize and remember who you are. You were this. Like, if you haven't sat back recently and paused to remember the hellion and the sin that defined your life over here, If you don't sit back on a regular basis and just go, God, I can't believe you saved me. I can't believe you love me. You you need to on a regular, you need to remember verse 12. Man, I remember the days of exclusion. I remember when I used to be like my neighbor who I don't like very much. I remember when I was like them. And if I needed salvation and 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 I needed help, I guess they do too, right? So he wants them to remember who they were to remind them of who they are today now as those who've been brought into the family. It says they are no longer foreigners and strangers. They are citizens of a new kingdom and they are members of a new household. So let's dive into these three pieces this morning. First one. What does it mean? This says they're fellow citizens with God's people. Verse 19. They are fellow citizens with God's people. So remember, let's say this right here, right? Let's say this wicker basket. This is Judaism. It's actually great because Judaism was one of the, the smallest and least important of all the people groups during during Abraham's day. Right? Like that was part of the plan of God's show. Let me show what I can do with such a pointless, meaningless, small group of people. They were not important. Nobody knew them. He says, so this is show you how powerful I'm going to make you my recipients. 
And so everybody else, this is little Judaism, right? Everybody else around here was considered a Gentile. And so all these, like, taking the Gentiles and says, okay, you remember, do you remember when you were out here and my people, right? The Jews were over here and had all my blessings and all my promises and all my covenants, right? They had all the gifts. Do you remember that? And they're like, remember, right? He says, okay. Well, the first thing I did is I made you citizens, right? So, I'm at, so this is Judaism. He says, all right, I'm going to step you in, right? Get right in here, right? So here we go. Woo, right? So we're all in. You are now citizens with the Jews and God's people, right? So they get in. It's fantastic. Thank you for not breaking wicker basket and showing my weight. So that's Judaism, wicker basket. And they're in. So they're fellow citizens. Now, you know what citizenship is. We're all citizens, or most of us, I think, the United States of America, right? So citizenship represents this, this big thing that we're a part of. So whether you're in Washington State or Washington, D.C., you're now citizens of the same country. And so he's saying, I brought you in to be my people, and you are all now fellow citizens. So what that means is, and hear this, for your identity... Remember, for your identity, you are primarily now citizens of the kingdom of God. That's your first part of your identity here. And what that means then is that you are Christian before you are Georgian. Southern by the grace of God, right? No, you're a Christian before you're even Southern. You're a Christian, we said last week, before you're white or black, or educated, or socioeconomically wealthy, whatever it may be, right? It's like you are Christian before you are anything else. This defines your citizenship. All right, so that's the first part. But then it kind of narrows down to the next step. It says, now you're fellow citizens, but next, verse 19, you are members of the same household. So it goes from large, right, to something smaller and more intense from big group, so not only are you citizens, but I'm going to put you in the same house. Do you understand king language, right? The king over the kingdom. So a king lives in a kingdom or a country with his people, but a father lives in a house with his child. And here God is in the house that we live in. And we are all in the same house. So we are fellow citizens. Jews and Gentiles were citizens. But now they're under the same roof. And you all know, like, you can act a certain way when you get together with other citizens of vintage. But when you go home under your roof, like the real you comes out. Right? And that's the picture. Jews and Gentiles... It's not just fellow citizens and then you can go behind your closed doors and be separated. No, you're under the same house now. You're under the same roof with the same dad. So let's figure it out. And then to make it even worse, if you want to name it that way, or even harder, or even greater, right, in the eyes of God. See, I did that. Three, you were built on the foundation together. You were built on the foundation together. So we're going to look at in a minute. Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets came next, right? And then like stone upon stone or brick upon brick, you are built. We are built upon one another. 
And the idea is that when you give your life to Jesus, all of a sudden God puts you in a community like this with people who are very, very different, right? Stones are awkwardly shaped. They don't necessarily go together. But God says, no, no, I will put my Holy Spirit cement and then you will now be placed on one another and you will be built upon one another. And so what we see is not only are we citizens together, not only are we in the same house, but man, we are responsible and, and for, for one another. We are inseparable because God puts his cement on us and puts us on top of one another. And now we are responsible for our relationship with one another, as I said a week ago with the youth, to imitate Christ in such a way that people who are cemented to you can imitate you and look like Jesus. Paul said more than twice, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because what he's saying is you should live your life in such a way that if someone for a month does what you do, that at the end of that month, they will look and act and sound like Jesus. That's your responsibility because God's looking to take people and do this to you. Why? Because that's what he does. That's the, listen, it's the only way that he does church. Like he has no alternative plan. It's to literally put us on top of one another and build and build and build and build. Others build on us. So that's our identity. Citizens in the same house, highly responsible as we are building upon one another. Like you recognize that thing. Being on top represents a level of intimacy. I'm not trying to be awkward or weird. Don't go eighth grade on me, right? It's like there is a level of intimacy. There's a level of intentionality. There's a level, like, don't you know that it delights God when you get with people and you do this? Like, you can recognize it delights him when you butt heads, when you have a hard time with people, when you wrestle with people. Do you know why? Because he's trying to sharpen you. He's trying to make help. He's helping you grow in patience. He's helping you grow in perseverance. Listen, I had a conversation with someone a couple weeks ago and they were struggling and like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, you just need to embrace it. This is this person who you can't stand is God's gift to you to help you grow in the fruit of his spirit. You should celebrate Jesus right now. I don't like them. I know you need to learn to love them and like them. So you better just give yourself to Jesus and let him sharpen you through them. That's what he does. Cement on top of each other. This is how it works. So he defines our identity. Then he defines their communal identity. This is a big way of saying he defines their family. What does it look like to do family? He defines their communal identity. It is sobering that Paul's focus in verses 19. Listen, it's very sobering in verses 19 through 22 to recognize that Paul's focus has very, very, very little to do with their relationship with Jesus and focuses almost strictly on their relationship with one another. The only level of relationship he talks about with Jesus is talking about having the foundation of Jesus. But everything else, I mean, you can look at the language, fellow citizens with God's people. Is that a Jesus thing? Members. Of his household. So we're members together, right? I mean, Jesus is the overarching umbrella, right? Don't get lost in this, right? But he's primarily talking about you're being built together, one another, right? The, the readers, right? This is you're being built together with who? 
one another. Cement, plaster on top of each other. We have a responsibility with one another. So we have to we have to note in verse 11 through 12 uh, as a theme. Paul speaking about unity. It's really important when someone's speaking and you're listening and they start using words like unity, not just to think about it as in a theological ascent to be able to go, yeah, that's great. Woohoo. You got, you got it right. But to go, man, I wonder, is there any disunity in my heart and relationship with people that I live around that I can actually apply this to in the moment? Because that's probably what God's trying to speak into. Right? So just press pause for a moment and go, man, where is their disunity? Where have I not embraced this reality? Where do I hate the tension? Where do I run away from people? Where do I have this broken relationship? Let's start there. For your sake. Now, so Paul's talking about unity. So here's an idea. Walls that divided us in Christ have come down. Walls that divided us, right? The wall of hostility has come down. Which walls did the cross of Jesus demolish that hinder unity? Which walls? All of them. If, listen, we follow this train of thought. If God shows no partiality and no favoritism, if all of us are created in his image, if God's purpose is unity, if we are to love even our enemies, if Christ took the hostility we have with other people into himself and destroyed it, on what grounds can we justify keeping any barriers in place? If God has already done the work, that's the whole purpose of the cross, is to break down hostility and to break down walls, then why do we think that it's okay to remain in a place of disunity? Now listen, I'm not, listen, I'm not, there may be people that are like, you don't know what, you don't know my story, you don't know the abuse that I experienced, and I would say, you're right. And so I'm not saying, so go back to an abusive relationship, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that even in that, God can still do, even in this maybe a, a needed separation, God can do a work of unity in your heart so that forgiveness can happen so that you in heart and spirit are able to be unified with someone who's even your enemy. That's what he's getting at. I'll be honest with you. I would love to know a percentage, but it's a very high percentage of people who are seeing less than God's best in their life because they harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in their hearts. And do you know what that is in your spiritual life? A wall that God can't get around. He can't go over. can't go through. Why? Because he has to go through. That's in the way of his spirit moving. God, just move. He's like, I can't. I really, really want to. But I've designed spirituality so that unforgiveness and bitterness impede the flow of my spirit. And impeding it and you becoming aware of it, it turns you to your brokenness so you can find healing. Does that make sense? It's like he, he awakens us to things aren't going right. What's going on? Where's the spirit of God? He's not flowing. And, he says, and, that, and we look back and say, God, is there any unforgiveness in me? Is there any bitterness? Is there any, any one God that I don't have unity with, God, that I, that I have to get right? Paul in the early church already extended the unity in Christ to Jew-Gentile. This is Galatians 3.28. You can just write it down. 
He extended unity to Jew-Gentile, to slave and free, and to the separation between male and female. Therefore, none of our barriers, our way of devaluing, limiting, and taking advantage of others has any basis. Because the positive reality, the positive truth is this. We are not alone. We are in a family in a very deep, personal, intimate way. And Paul is calling his readers, them and us, by God's grace, to embrace this beautiful yet difficult life together. Which leads to the third part, then, of wrestling through the expressions of life together. Life together. So the expressions of life together, the essence of these verses, again, drives home that life is relational and every one of us are connected together. Jesus knocked down the wall of hostility. He knocked down the racial barrier. He placed them in the same wicker basket, right? The same family. And he made each, he made each other, each of them the foundation of one another. Jew, Gentile, black and white. American, non-American said, man, we're going to build upon one another. So keys to life together, number one, Jesus has to be the foundation, verse 20. says that he is the cornerstone, right? I'm not going to read it. It's up there. You already read it. Jesus is the cornerstone. This is not, listen, we think of cornerstones. It's not like some ceremonial, you know, stone like you see in a building or on a, on a bridge that says constructed in year, whatever it may be in remembrance, right? No, the cornerstone, this, this is a foundation. It speaks to the foundation stone, the foundation stone. In Jesus's day, cornerstones were the primary load-bearing stone that you built upon, right? That determined everything about the building. We all understand this, right? When you drive through a neighborhood where houses being built, and you watch the progression, what happens? They go into a piece of property, they clear it off, they make it flat, they put out little wooden stakes, they build a frame, what do they pour in? They pour in concrete to put a found, as a foundation for every house that's being built. Why? Because if you don't build on a healthy foundation, your house will sink and in time it will crumble. And so he's coming to say, man, so for our life together to work, Jew and Gentile, vintage 242 church, right, to live in the context of being in the basket together, then being in a house together, and man, like being like glued to one another as a a life calling by Jesus, man, it's going to be super important, y'all, that your foundation, your chief cornerstone for your life is Jesus. If not, your marriages will not make it. Your relationship with your kids won't make it. Relationship with your neighbors won't make it. And you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. Jesus has to be the cornerstone of your relationships. And specifically those outside of us that are different than us that we have a really hard time with. Jesus has to be the cornerstone. They, when they read it, meet with Isaiah 28, 16, which says this. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation The one who relies on it will never, never, never be stricken with panic or anxiety. Like, I love when words like never and always are used in the Bible. Because either he means it or he's lying. Like you see something, let's let things sink in. Like, whoa, that's a really big. So if I make Jesus the foundation, I never have to be stricken with panic. Correct. We're like, I need to pray through that one. <laughs> right? I got to pray through that one. Woo! That's a big statement. 
Does he mean it or does he not? Is it always and never? And so we're coming back to the point of saying, man, God, look at all the panic. I say North Korea, how do you feel? I say racism in America, how do you feel? You read through the news, man, the news is not like everything's great. It's panic. Money's made by our media off of panic. Broken places, broken things. Panic. And people are going, oh, I wish somebody could show me how not to panic. I wish a people group would show me not how to be stricken with panic. I wish somebody had the answer. I just wish there was an answer. There is a chief cornerstone if we will stand on it and then build upon each other under the foundation of Jesus. And people will look and go, oh, there is a building being constructed. And I think there's some spirit of God that dwells in it. Maybe I'll go there. Do you see what I'm talking about? Do you think unity is not important? Do you think that pressing through your discomfort and you're not liking somebody and your own selfishness and pride is really that important to God? Do you think he doesn't want to crush all of that so that he can build upon you and so people can know Jesus and not die and go to hell? Man. You see, like I'm, like I'm not, I mean, some, well, I'm not going to say this. Somebody said one day, like, you're so angry. No, I'm just so passionate. I don't mean that to like as a like excuse like ah oh. like to be honest. I mean I pray to their days like God I just don't like people right now. I'm sure none of you ever get there. I just don't like people. I'm tired of neediness and I'm tired of like anger and I'm tired of people telling me I'm doing wrong and I'm tired of failing and I'm just tired of ah. Oh. And God, this one says, cornerstone, Steve. I've designed you to press through the difficulty. I've empowered you to die to your pride. I've empowered you to engage relationships with people who are very, very different than you. As long as it requires you being the chief cornerstone of Jesus. And then built upon the built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? Verse twenty says then, and now all that's really saying is that he's looking at them, saying, "Hey, listen, it's like there was Jesus, and then there were apostles, those and prophets who literally saw this was like not past Old Testament prophets; it was like modern day apostles and prophets in their day. Okay, that's what it's talking about—the modern day apostles, the the and prophets, these the Johns and and John the Baptists and the Peters and all the apostles and disciples, right? Minus Stephen, excuse me, minus um, Judas Iscariot, all of them who who were these primary ones. Philip would have been a primary one for all of Samaria, right? All these apostles and prophets and their teachings and their lifestyles and who they were and the things that we learned from them. And they just went to Jesus, attached to him. So all that we read in the Bible that you have, it's not just knowing the words, but it's learning their life and their lifestyle and the things they taught and the things they believed and the things they expressed, right? So it's Jesus and his life that you read. And then it was the apostles and how they lived. And so third is that we're then built upon one another. We're built upon one another. That's the language of this being this one new being and this body language and this building imagery. It speaks to an us that defines our life as 
one body. We must be involved with Christ and involved with one another. We must be involved with Christ and involved with one another as we are all in him and being built upon him. In this passage, our this is, this is, this is, this is so vital. In this passage, our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with one another are powerfully woven together where they do not exist in isolation. So let me put that a little more succinctly. What Paul would be saying then in the context of this is that you can't have your own personal relationship with Jesus and no relationship with people. Like, you can't have a person, there's no such thing in God's eyes as a personal relationship with Jesus devoid of people. Like, do you realize we can't fulfill the great commandment of God apart from people? What does he say? Love God. And the second one is the same as you love your neighbor. We're only fulfilling one half of God's commandment, and it requires both parts. So we don't have our own individual personal relationship with Jesus devoid from anybody else. Let's dive into this a little bit. So under this, we are not individuals only. So in our culture, right, we celebrate individualism in our culture, and it in turn keeps us from embracing fully the kingdom understanding of the body. We have to change our outlook. There is no, listen, there is no, listen, there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. And hear this, this is straight from the Lord. And there is no such thing as Lone Family Christianity. It's just, it's not just Jesus and me or Jesus and my family and me. There's no such thing as that in the eyes of God. Therefore, if we speak of salvation, it's important we talk about a person's individual salvation into what? A corporate body where they have a vital role to be on top of one another and become a foundation that other people can build upon. We are not saved into a God vacuum. We are saved into God's family. We are not saved into individuals. I can't answer that word. Individualism, right? We're not saved here to one thing, just me and God. We are saved into relationship with God and other people. We are saved into a family. We are saved into a, into the civilization. We are saved into a household and we are saved onto this. All of us. There's no isolation in Christ. God already has a plan for you to be cemented to someone and to live a life that they can imitate so that they can look like Jesus. Our failure to do family well in church does not negate the biblical call of God putting us in family. What do I mean by that? If I ask you right now, how many of you have been wounded by church? Some of you do like this and some of you like this. All right. All of us have. And so do you know what you do? By nature, you pull away. You isolate. You separate. Because it feels like it's protecting you. And instead, it's killing you. Because the biblical mandate 
of loving neighbor selflessly as you love yourself is a commandment of God that demands we die to our pride, we die to our selfishness, we die to our own personal, individual rights and freedoms so that someone else can be free and know him. Ah! We are saved into family. All right. So we are family. We are family. You know God intimately, but the more alone, this is what you're not thinking about like this. So just listen. You can know God intimately, but the more alone you are as a Christian, the less intimate you can be with him and the less you will know God. You can know God intimately, but the more alone you are as a Christian, the less intimate you can be and the less that you will know God. The idea is very simple. Every person we know has their own unique relationship with Jesus that expresses a unique attribute of who God is. So let's just put in the context we'll look at later in Ephesians. He says, I've called some to be apostles, right? I've called some to be prophets. I've called some to be evangelists. I've called some to be shepherds. And I've called some to be teachers. So let's just say that all you ever do is hang out with people who know how to express the gift of teaching. Right? I mean, it's been a lot of great teaching, but you're going to just four whole other attributes of God's gifts and other people that you've never experienced and therefore you've never experienced this apostolic part of who God is or the prophetic part of who God is or the evangelistic part of who God is or the shepherding part of who God is. Could you imagine never being around shepherds who make you feel better about yourself? That'd be sad. Just their jobs to love on you. The world would be terrible without shepherds. And what if you were a part of a world without any? Never know God as a shepherding father. How would that feel? You would never experience that. So if we're not around people in relationship every day who are expressing these parts and attributes of God, then we can't fully know him. C.S. Lewis, who went by Jack to his friends, told a story about his friend Ronald and Charles that he'd hang out with on a weekly basis. So every week, Jack, Ronald, and Charles would get together and they would just enjoy life. And one day, Charles died. And so obviously Jack was very upset about this, but he said the only golden lining to this is it'll give, it will give me more time with Ronald so that we can know each other in a deeper way. But he found this out. He found that without Charles, he got less of Ronald because there were just certain things in Ronald that only Charles could bring out. Have you ever experienced that before? You get one-on-one with somebody, it's a little bit awkward, and you only have this so much, but then you add like a third person to the party, and all of a sudden, hey, and it's like there's more dynamic going on, and you had a fourth and a fifth, and you're like, it's just more enjoyable because there's just more coming out, and more wisdom, more knowledge, more understanding, more experience. Like, man, this bigger group is a little more fun than just the two of us. This is not bad, the two of us, right? It wasn't bad with, with Jack and Ronald, but it was so much better with Charles in the mix to fully, to fully, to fully know Jesus happens as we get to know Jesus through others. For only an experience Jesus through others, we get to see the full breadth of who he is. This is God's gift. That you can know him fully 
as you experience Jesus in the context of your communal family relationship with those who live in your house. I mean, just for us, I mean, you all know we do foster care. All right. Now, those of you who do foster care, you know, we have our stories of difficulty. Right. It's always hard. But we also have our stories over here of how our family dynamic in some way changes. Like we have we have one of our kids that when whenever she comes back, our house is filled with the laughter that we have not had since the last time that she was there. Because she is hilarious. And we all enjoy it. Part of her part of us comes out when we're around her. We are family. We only get the fullness of Jesus as we experience him through others that we're in relationship with, which then leads us to our responsibility then of being part of God's family. The nature of the scripture is the Gentiles and all others who give their lives to Jesus. Yes, they have a new identity in Christ. But we all face the same issue that they face. We come in as family. Now we own all the stuff. Now we have all the blessings. Now we're part of the cool crowd. Now we're part of the holy huddle over here. We have been blessed, but what are we going to do with it? Will we look down on others who are not like us? Will we circle up in this holy huddle? Will we demean and exclude as we embrace a holier-than-thou mentality? We have received, don't forget, so that we can give away. We have been blessed to be a blessing. We have had servanthood modeled to us. Why? So we can become servants of all. Paul said, I've become all things to all people so that I might just win some. We have a hard time identifying, right, with circumcision, uncircumcision, these verses, or even the tension of Jew-Gentile. But we live in a world, right, where we understand the idea of racism. We understand the idea of alienation and division, name-calling, hopelessness and loneliness, broken trust, rejection, isolation, and purposelessness, which defines the lives of so many and define the Gentiles before Christ. The Jews did not go to them. The Jews hoarded. And I just wonder what we're doing. I just wonder, are we building and looking are we looking to die to self and our own pride? Are we looking to, to pursue unity so that others may know that we're Christians by our love for one another? What are we going after? Are we, are we asking for forgiveness? Are we forgiving those who have sinned against us? Are we pursuing unity as a primary goal and agenda in our life? Or are we holding on to resentment and bitterness and tension in disunity. We are to pursue Jesus. We are to invite and welcome others as we embrace unity by giving our lives and preferring and serving others. We must give our lives to invite others in. We invite the worship team to come forward and just to understand just how, how those things work. As you go back to our website, there's a, under ministries, you see adult ministries. I'm not going to need to go there right now, but it's adult ministries. And under adult ministries, actually, there's this thing that we've created that kind of talks about the flow into the life of vintage. And so we just kind of tell you briefly how, this, how it works. You come into vintage, and hopefully we're nice to you, right? If we're not, let me know, okay? And I'll spank somebody, okay? No. So you come in, we're nice to you. It's like, hey, family, it's like a, there's, I could be citizens here, right? If we come in. 
And then we have our infusion group. Randall named it. What's infusion? It's like, hey, so if you're going to be part of the citizenship with us, this is what it's going to look like. Here's what we're expecting of you, and here's what we commit to you in the context of discipleship, in the context of being family, in the context of mission together. And they look at you and say, hey, so the next part is be part of the house together, so let's get in a small group. Let's become part of a small group. Like, I don't do small groups. Well, I'm sorry. Then you can't really grab into the life of vintage, because that's what we've planned. That's what we've created. Infusion leads to small group, because you're part of the house together. What's this going to be me and my family? Well, then... You've missed God, right? I'm just being honest. That's what we just talked about, okay? It can't just be you and your family. It doesn't work that way. You miss everything that God has in his fullness, okay? And so then he brings you and puts you in a small group, and it's so hard. Oh, my gosh. Look at the small group. Best thing ever. Everything's going to be perfect, and you're going to love every minute. No. It's a community of people. It's going to be boom, 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 and hardship and greatness. This is how it works. And you go to a small group. Then we have our DNA groups. DNA groups are discipleship and nurture accountability. It's like these smaller, like, I mean, life on life, accountability, greatest concerns. They're really the core and heart of what I'm struggling with, what I need God to do, what I'm praying into. That's what we've created. That's how it works. Because we recognize the need of God's plan for us to embrace the wall of hostility coming down, to be put into family together. Like, you know, things that sharpen each other, like how do they do it? They go like they do like this. And what happens? They hit jagged edge and they rip it off. I mean, we're like, oh, sharpening this is so nice. No, it's it hurts like hell. And it's just part of it. And so all of a sudden that jagged edge is gone. And like, oh, man, part of hell has been released from my heart. And a lot of Jesus it wasn't a cuss word I just used, guys. Because we have a lot of hell, a lot of the, the world, a lot of our flesh inside of us that only community can knock the edge off of. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We've been designed to live heavenly lives, connected to you and loving and being loved by neighbors. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking this morning that you would just awaken us. You'd awaken us to your truth, that you'd awaken us to your kingdom, that you'd awaken us to your life. And Lord, even as you speak into these areas of disunity, we're in our stubbornness. We just say, we're not, we're not going to move. Father, I pray just a humbling this morning and that we find ourselves stopping and are wrestling with you. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and have your way as we submit ourselves to the will of Jesus in all areas. We pray this in your name. So, this morning, as we always do, we're going to take the time of ministry. Ministry time looks like this. We have ministry teams. There's people like you and me in their own places of brokenness and need saying, listen, we understand. It's hard to live like this. hard to follow Jesus fully. It's hard to live in community. We get it. We'd love to pray for you or for anything. If you need healing, you need breakthrough, you need restoration, God's in a, we believe we're in a season of God just pouring out his spirit and bringing healing to all of our broken places in our lives. Would we come after him this morning in that and ask for it? 
We have offering baskets available each morning. Why? Well, because some of you come in obedience this morning to give back to God what he's given to you. Whether it's an offering or what they say in Scripture, the word tithe. We take 10% of what God's given to us and we give it back to him in the context of our tithes and offerings. It's a biblical mandate. We want to get an opportunity to worship God in that way. Three, communion's available every week. Why? Because we recognize we only function and only have salvation because of the gospel of Jesus, his good news, that he looked at us in our brokenness and loved us and came to earth and his body was broken, his blood was poured out so we could have salvation and know him. So this morning, listen, stop running from Jesus and stop running from your hurt and run to the only one who can bring breakthrough, salvation, and healing you pursue unity. All right. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to come back up and pray us out. So you respond as the Lord leads.